You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. coming. Um, this, for those of you who don't know, this is a weekly lecture series as uh, run as part of the Central Eurasian Studies Summer Institute here at UW-Madison. For today's talk, I am delighted to introduce Edward Friedman, a Professor Emeritus of Political Science here at UW-Madison. Professor Friedman received his MA in East Asian Studies and PhD in Political Science, both from Harvard University. His scholarship has been a combination of political anthropology, specifically studies of how the state impacts rural China based on his work in Chinese villages, as well as international relations, benefiting from his previous work in various parts of the US government. He has authored a number of books on China and Asia more broadly, and continues to conduct research on Chinese foreign policy. He will be speaking today on China's foreign policy interests, particularly with regards to Central Asia. So please join me in welcoming him. Thank you. So um, my focus is on China's foreign policies to uh, the region of Central Asia. And I'm going to begin with uh, 1991 when the USSR implodes and independent Muslim-majority republics emerge in Central Asia, which are on the map. To ruling groups in Beijing, this transformation was a liberating miracle. Since the mid-1960s, ruling groups in Moscow had moved their military within the USR, the world's largest state, to China's northern and western borders in forward array, that is, prepared to move uh, forward. Real threats to China. In the Kremlin, leaders debated into the 1970s whether or not to attack Mao's China. Mao's China had started treating Russia as enemy number one soon after Stalin died in 1953, whereupon Mao decided that he, Mao, and China were now the natural leaders of the world's anti-imperialist movement. And to legitimate his and China's role, he had to discredit Stalin's successes, so Mao had the right to lead. And Mao's partners became anybody who was anti-Soviet. That would include the Pinochet dictatorship in Chile, the Shah in Iran, and pro-apartheid Angolan forces in Portugal's colony of Angola. They were all treated as natural partners. And this logic, of course, was the underpinning of the Nixon-Mao Entente of 1971-72. And then suddenly, in 1991, that enemy Soviet Union was gone. It imploded. The Russian Red Army, starting with Afghanistan, actually in 1989, went home. Gone from the Chinese borders was a hostile military force which had been threatening China from around 1963-64. Instead, on China's borders were powerless Central Asian unthreatening places like Kazakhstan, or if you could see over just sticking out on the uh, far right side, uh, Mongolia. China's north and west were no longer military uh, concerns. And See that uh, Russia remained the largest 
uh, state in the uh, world. But if you can see, the only part that touches uh, China comes down in the northeast, where China is populated and Russia is not. And Russia has fears of China, in this case, instead of the other way around. Uh, so in this new situation, uh, China, Deng Xiaoping, uh, the uh, original post-Mao uh, leader, uh, wants to institutionalize the transformation so that the North and West will not be in any way threats to China. He wants border settlements with the new states of Central Asia. Now, the settlements actually all were tilted in China's behalf. Uh, they're not fair and equal kind of settlements, but the truth was the Central Asian governments were delighted to have those settlements. They were uh, weak and uh, had no uh, military or ec economy to speak of, and China was already a giant power, and they welcomed actually having the solution at such a small price. This, however, was not enough to make China's ruling groups feel secure about the region. They were traumatized by the 1991 implosion of the Soviet Union. Um, while Mao had wished that the Soviet Union would implode, ending the prison house of nationalities and weakening his Russian adversary, post-Mao rulers asked themselves, given the fact that China and Russia had similar political systems, was China vulnerable to a similar kind of implosion? Supreme Leader Deng Xiaoping dismissed the question. To Deng, China and Russia were totally different. The Soviet Union had been made uniquely weak because of 70 years of suffering under Lenin's and Stalin's closed-door, autarkic, anti-market command economy. For Deng, uh, the real problems with the Soviet Union were the negation of Lenin's market-oriented new economic policies in the 1920s and the toppling of reformer Khrushchev in 1964, leaving Russia a stagnant kind of economy which could not meet the needs of the state or of its own people. And to Deng, this was not about to happen uh, to uh, China. In contrast to the 70 years of Leninist-Stalinist command economics in the USSR, Mao Zedong had only 20 years to ruin the Chinese economy. <laughs> when Deng initiated reforms in 1978, 20, only 20 or so years after collectivization, Chinese people were still alive who knew how a market worked, who knew what it was to own their own property, who were thrilled at the thought of getting into business. Deng was going to open China to the uh, world market. He was going to copy uh, East Asian institutions and policies which had made East Asia the most dynamic economic region of the world. And Deng was absolutely persuaded that China had a prosperous future, nothing like stagnant and declining USSR. I personally may be persuaded by Deng's shrewd analysis of how China and Russia were different and therefore would have very different futures. Most Chinese leaders, conservative, chauvinist, secret police types, disagreed with Deng. In their view, Stalin's liberal nationalities policies were among the causes of the implosion. Non-majority people could not be trusted. Um, the result of Stalin's nationality policies was that ethno-religious communities maintained cultural autonomy and a common identity. As a result, China was home to Turkish-speaking Muslim Uyghurs 
who, looking at the new independent Central Asian states, the Stans, Uzbekistan, etc., wanted their own Stan state, a Uyghur Stan. Uh, for CCP chauvinists, who were important in the party, not dominant yet, that such people had to be destroyed. Here's how one of them wrote, or one of the think tank people wrote, 1991, as these events occur. Invaders of China disappeared one after another, such as the Huns, the Eastern Hu, the Turks, the Xianbei, and so forth. China of the present is the continuation and development of the past. It is natural and good that the less advanced assimilate the culture of the advanced. Our great motherland was founded jointly by the ancestors of all our nationalities. For a Uyghur community to try to hold on to its culture and community and thereby disrupt this Chinese unity would be treasonous and is only promoted by a handful of scum. And scum had to be wiped out. For most CCP leaders, as Deng grew old and weak and retired and died in the mid-1990s, Uyghurs had to be destroyed. And the party declared war on Uyghurs. Some pictures to make the point. The first set of pictures is to show evil Uyghurs. you can all see are up to nefarious kinds of things and who only offer death and destruction and who if not wiped out would bring horror to China. Therefore the thing to do was to wipe them out. Whoops! Was to wipe them out. Sweep them away. Um, You couldn't let them study the Quran or go to the mosque. You had to, I love this one actually, um, you had to get them, that's an A, that's uh, not a Chinese term, but just say study up there in uh, Chinese. And you had to uh, have them understand that they were members of that's the, the flag of the People's Republic and they're obviously reading communist books and they would have happy lives if they were as China would see it at that time. Modern people liberated from those evil things and knew where peace lay in the, uh, in the future. Um, and then they could have joyous futures. Um, so uh, that was uh, the pro- propaganda. And the propaganda was uh, buttressed by a number of, uh, of facts. Um, uh, the, uh, the key one was a 2009 riot in the capital of Xinjiang Autonomous Region, Urumqi, in response to the murder of two Uyghurs by Han in China's Southeast Industrial Belt. Um, and this, uh, and, and they, they uh, after uh, hearing about the murder, they marched into the Chinese district and they attacked, killed, whatever. Um, of course, they got it back in spades the, uh, the next day. But for CCP ruling groups, this was proof that Uyghurs and Tibetans and Mongols and serious Christians and Falun Gong spiritualists had to be destroyed for the Chinese state to survive. Therefore, CCP leaders uh, looked at Central Asia in terms of China's security, and they wanted to make sure that those neighboring governments in Central Asia would help China with its project of wiping out the Uyghurs, a policy actually of cultural genocide. 
In Central Asia, moderate Muslim <laughs> states uh, also worried about militant Islam, which, as you all know, was unleashed really around 1979 with the coming to power of the Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran and then the decision of Wahhabi Islamists in Saudi Arabia to compete with Iran globally in Islamic militancy. Um, and Central Asian governments were willing to cooperate with China against Uyghurs um, and any other things seen as religious extremists, terrorists, or splitters. And they would turn over to the PRC Uyghurs in their countries who the Chinese dubbed, for whatever reasons, terrorists or extremists. This cooperation between China and Central Asia became the basis of what became the Shanghai Cooperation Organization in 2001. It serves a key security purpose for the Chinese Communist Party, uh, preventing the, the state from imploding as did the USSR, and um, <coughs> they really see the danger of an implosion. Here's what an imploded China would look like. It would be returned to its core, which I'll show in a second, goes back to the Ming Dynasty. You'd have an independent East Turkestan, you'd have an independent larger Tibet, which is where the Tibetan people actually live, not just in the autonomous region, and uh, a larger Mongolian kind of region. And these people took this as a very serious possibility uh, that had to be uh, prevented at any, uh, at any uh, cost. Uh, in addition, since 1993, a rapidly rising China which under Mao thought of itself as not merely energy self-sufficient, but as a potential oil-rich Saudi Arabia for East Asia, suddenly discovered that its rising modern economy had to import huge amounts of energy. The Chinese Communist Party did not want to be dependent on oil from unstable regions like the Middle East. In addition, uh, oil from the Middle East had to cross the Indian Ocean and go through the Strait of Malacca seas which are controlled by the United States Navy. And the United States, in the eyes of ruling groups in China, had promoted democracy and supposedly was the cause of China's 1989 democracy movement, as well as the democracy movements which uh, undercut Eastern Europe, Leninist states, and so on. China has no interest in becoming dependent on the goodwill of the United States. Therefore, it sought to in invest in oil and gas pipelines from Central Asia, um, routes which would not be subject uh, to the power of the United States Navy. Uh, and China had an interesting experience as they built these uh, pipelines because the other Central Asian countries did not want their pipelines to go through Kazakhstan. They all valued their own independence and they did not want to be dependent on a rising Kazakhstan. All countries seek to be independent. The bigger and more powerful work harder at it, as with China on energy and food. But all countries work on it. Just to tell you an American story, after World War I, the US government was aware that war depended on rubber for tires, for jeeps and trucks, and armored personnel carriers. The US had an assured supply of rubber from the British colony of Malaya. Nonetheless, the US government backed the Firestone Corporation in establishing the African, uh, establishing in the African country of Liberia rubber plantations, which would assure the United States a, de a dependable supply of rubber. And when in World War II, 
uh, Hirohito's imperial military seed Malaya, it made the U.S. quest. Quest for rubber independence look like an act of genius. And China really is not so different in how it thinks about food or energy uh, independence. Um, I, tend to, I say this because there's lots of explanations of Chinese behavior which make it dependent on uh, unique Chinese cultural uh, characteristics, and I tend to think that Chinese foreign policy is pretty much uh, easily explained by ordinary international relations questions. Anyway, China also knew it needed, still knows it needs, and wants American high technology. But it doesn't want to be dependent on the United States for reasons already mentioned. So China tends to see Europe as an alternative for high technology to the United States, something which makes China and Russia, by the way, have very, very different uh, interests. China courts Europe. Uh, Russia, as you all know, uh, does not. In the light of China's quest for good relations with Europe, Central Asia came to seem to China's ruling groups as a secure land route to Europe. And China was willing to invest in high-speed rail train tracks through Central Asia to help make China independent of the United States, even in this issue of high technology. And it subsidizes the trains, which really do not um, make money. Security interests come before economic interests for the Chinese ruling groups. As a result of these Chinese policies, billions in Chinese money have poured into Central Asia. Since the Russian economy has remained dependent on the export of energy and other primary product goods that Central Asia also possesser, possesses, Russia has little to offer the Central Asian region. Meanwhile, China has become an economic superpower by adopting Japan's neo-mercantilist policies. And China has become Central Asia's number one trade par partner. And Russia's, Russia's economic clout in the region goes from weak to weaker to weakest. This new situation creates serious problems for the countries of Central Asia, China, and Russia as they look to their future. China and Russia, I mean China and Europe is not a love marriage. Germany is, as China sees it, the key to the high tech that China does not want to be dependent on America for. But Germany fears that China is going to steal its high technology. And Germany is more serious about human rights than is the United States. The headquarters of the World Uyghur Congress is in Germany. And the UN-registered international non-government organization, Survival of Threatened People, also works out of Germany. While Donald Trump would never mention Uyghurs <laughs> to the CCP leaders, uh, the present leader of Germany does. So I don't know what the future of China-European relations is going to be and how Central Asia can benefit from, this, uh, from these ties, because I, I just don't know uh, the futures. And I want to make that clear because my goal here is to say something about future possibilities, and I don't know the future. But studies of people who do forecast the future shows one thing. The worst forecasters, the worst forecasters, are specialists who believe they know the future. And the most important thing is to understand you don't know the future and be understand, open to changes which you may not be expecting, um, which is what I suggest that you do. 
One reason for the unknowability of the future, in addition to the general contingency of all political activities, is the increasing speed at which the world changes. Change used to occur so slowly that most people could not see change in their lifetime, and they tended to imagine the world, therefore, in terms of cycles, dust thou wast and dust thou will be, China repeating dynastic cycles. But by the late 18th century, change sped up. People could see it in their lifetime and began to imagine history as having a direction. Some freedom, for others socialism, for others modernity, whatever. But today, the world changes almost too quickly to be comprehended. Hence, things like chaos theory or black swans, totally unexpected events which are actually unimaginable and then happen, like the implosion of the Soviet uh, Union. Not certain about the future, evermore states imagine their past as their future. They see themselves as becoming great again by being true to who they really are. They wish to return to a yet more glorious future, a right rewriting of the imperial past. This is true for both Russia and China, as well as India, Iran, Turkey, and many other kinds of countries. I am not a specialist in Central Asia, but I would wager that if Central Asian states remain stable and if they succeed in economic development, people will begin to imagine a glorious past, and there are many glorious pasts in Central Asia uh, to remember. And they might even imagine a large Central Asia running from the Ottoman Empire to uh, the Manchu Qing Empire of uh, China. Um, and then we would have very different politics. But today, the region is caught between China and Russia. And the governments of the region welcome China's help because they see a need for investment, for capital, uh, for infrastructure. Um, and they're happy to help China reach Europe or Iran or Turkey because they like to do the same thing. And they'll be happy to receive aid from Japan or South Korea or India. They don't want to be dependent on China, yet ever more they are. China is the great power of the region. As you all know, China's supreme leader, Xi Jinping, imagines his so-called Belt and Road Initiative announced first in 2013 in Astana, the capital of Kazakhstan, as a policy which will win China a secure and glorious future as the center of the world economy. We now have the time here to analyze the Belt and Road Initiative for Central Asia in any detail. Um, happy to answer any questions about it later. But I would suggest that it's important to include in any analysis of the Belt Road Initiative China's domestic interests. The initiative is a way to keep heavy steel, state-owned enterprises and construction com companies, the core of the party state's um, uh, political economy, from going broke, from preventing, from ke keeping unemployment low, preventing social instability. It's also a way of getting Han people to move to Xinjiang, China's west, and further marginalize Uyghurs and secure a united Han Communist Party state. In Central Asia, as I said, government and business both hunger with Chinese investment money. Where else will they get it? 
but they also worry, as do Chinese Development Bank, that these loans, commercial credits, which are tied A, tied to using Chinese firms, Chinese parts, and Chinese laborers, end up intensifying anti-China passions in Central Asia and producing a debt crisis in the region and also in China. Analysts differ on the future of the Belt and Road, but the Chinese Communist state focused on its own security, say food security, and worries about food security because ever more land is being used for other purposes, and all they have rules which say um, that you can't take agricultural land out of agriculture unless you replace it with other land, they lie and make money. Um, there's no evidence, I, I mean, they're going to seek that land in uh, Kazakhstan, even if it sets off anti-China passions, they do it all over the world. Anyway, there is no evidence that these Chinese commercial credits paid back usually with primary products such as natural gas and oil, priced as China wishes, allow the target nations to escape what they see as a neo-colonial trap in which they pay high prices for Chinese manufactured goods and sell China primary products and low, at low prices. Um, but China's Belt and Road Initiative is experienced as the only game in town. So um, how does Russia experience this extraordinary rise of Chinese wealth, power, and influence in Central Asia? For Russia, it's humiliating. It is really humiliating. Anybody know what's wrong with that picture? Mm. What's wrong with the picture? Mao actually was much taller than Stalin. <laughs> much taller than Stalin. Um, but uh, you have to show Stalin is always taller. It was the big brother. Um, China was to become uh, uh, another Soviet Union. And this change in situation um, is really something which I think Chinese enjoy. Russia has no choice but to come to China, that's uh, what it says there, if I remember right, is uh, Euro or American economic sanctions. Russia needs the Chinese uh, money. Uh, China just needs wealth. Um, and th they may smile at each other, but it's very clear China gets the uh, oil pipelines, and uh, Russia really just needs uh, China. That's basically uh, the, uh, the story. So China does not see Putin the way that Donald Trump sees Putin. To China, Putin is not big and strong. He's little and puny. And he is a uh, beggar. Uh, he has no economy. And he comes to the Chinese begging and virtually uh, naked. Um, it has no alternative but China. It has to sell China oil at low prices to get Chinese cash to survive. And in these negotiations, China is a hard bargainer. It is not in the business of philanthropy. Um, you can choose which image of Putin you like, uh, Xi Jinping's or Donald uh, Trump's. <laughs> anyway, uh, Putin really prefers, as you all know, a Russia returning to the imperial glory of a state dominating Eurasia. Um, and he promotes uh, a supposed Eurasian economic union. 
which turns out so far to be not much more than a, a little bit of a customs union which allows some labor mobility. He does not want to see China dominating Central Asia. Central Asians don't either. They would love to have a actually larger Russia uh, to be able to balance against uh, China, but there is nothing there uh, to, uh, to use. So you can then raise the question whether Central Asians are crazy to worry about Chinese expansionism or Chinese influence in their region of uh, the uh, world. After all, uh, Central Asia is really not a primary interest of China. It's much more involved with the great powers of the world. It's much more involved with its neighbors to the east and the, uh, in the, and the south. Um, uh, why would uh, anything bad happen between uh, China and Central Asia? Uh, well, as people in China's neighboring states see it, the party tells the people of China that their number one task is to reunify China which leads to an, uh, an obsession with territory which supposedly China had lost in the past. Mao's view was that China had lost the most territory to Russia, including uh, Mongolia, and including parts of uh, Central Asia. And they don't want to think of China in the great commercialized Sung Dynasty, which is just that part of southern uh, China, they don't want to think of China as it was in the Ming Dynasty, which is the strife place, the bigger place is the Qing Dynasty, the Manchu Conquest. They tend to think of China in terms of, if you can see the dotted line on the furthest north, the furthest expansion of the Qing Empire. And they think of any territory which was previously thought of as part of or vassal to China as territory lost, uh, a humiliation which has to be corrected. Here's a Chinese historian. How do we handle the question of historical China? We take the territory of the Qing Dynasty after its complete unification and prior to the encroachment of imperialism on China, specifically China's territory from 1750s to 1840s, the period preceding the Opium Wars as the historical sphere of China. What is termed historical China is this sphere. Whether it's a question of centuries or millennia, the nationalities active in this sphere are considered by us to be Chinese. The regimes established within this sphere are considered by us to be Chinese historical regimes. That means um, that the Manchus of the Qing dynasty were Chinese and Genghis Khan and his Mongol uh, successors were also uh, Chinese, and all of this territory includes parts of Central Asia. And uh, there are people in China who promote this vision. Uh, one of them, uh, a general in the, uh, in the uh, Chinese uh, military, General Liu Yajou, Central Asia is the richest gift bestowed on China by the heavens. Any state that gets in the way of China's territorial ambition is made a target of popular hatred by the Chinese state. Um, by the way, remember we're talking about the Chinese state, not Chinese society. So I'm going to read a poem from someone in Chinese society. Here's a poem by a Chinese last year uh, as they're being taught to hate South Koreans when South Koreans were trying to defend themselves against North Korea. And it's a uh, poem 
hoping the translation isn't horrible, uh, which expresses, uh, which mocks this learning to hate all these other people for, um, as I just described. In the morning, I hate America. At lunchtime, I hate Korea. In the evening, I hate the Japanese. I also have to squeeze in hate for Singapore and the Taiwanese. Then at night, when I dream, I hate Vietnam and the Philippines. On Monday, I again oppose Korea. On Tuesday, Japan. On Wednesday, it's the Americans again. On Thursday, I oppose Taiwan independence. Friday, that of Hong Kong. Come Saturday, come Saturday against independence in Tibet. On Sunday, it's that of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. My life is wonderful and rich. I have no time to think or bitch. Um, but uh, there is a more serious analysis uh, of what is happening in terms of Chinese political consciousness. This is an article published just two days ago, the 17th. In recent years, a revived historical saying has swept the Chinese internet. Whoever attacks our Chinese people will be killed, no matter how far away. Taken from the 2017 film Wolf Warrior II, a Chinese Rambo-style action movie set in Africa, it paraphrases a 2,000-year-old Han Dynasty saying, no, whoever attacks our strong Han will be killed no matter how far away. The, that dates to when the Han Dynasty armies at its height under Han Wudi, around 2,000 years ago, I'm just reading, chased the barbarian Xiongnu deep into Central Asia taking new territory. The historical parallel offers us lessons for today. So the big question then is, what do all of these clashing forces and tendencies and ambitions mean for the future of Central Asia? Does Central Asia maintain its independence by courting Russia and others and balancing uh, China? Uh, that clearly is what Central Asia and virtually everybody else likes to do. They like to maximize their independence. India, seeing itself as a rival of China, would like to be in Central Asia, along with Japan, to balance against China. Japan gives serious aid uh, to, uh, to Central Asia. I read from a Chinese analysis from the uh, journal Dangdaiguo um, Jianzhou, Contemporary International Relations. India and Japan will also promote co-development of the Trincomalee port in North Sri Lanka to balance China's fast-growing influence especially to counter the Hambanatototo port project undertaken by China. Um, Sri Lanka couldn't pay, pay its debts. China took the port as a payment of the uh, debts. Um, uh, India has involved Japan in developing Iran's Chabahar port, which is intended to be a core conduit linking India with Afghanistan and Central Asia and to countervail the role of the Gwadar port in Pakistan, tied to Chinese-Pakistan um, economic corridor. India has been actively involving itself in Afghanistan's affairs since 2001, with the aim of geopolitically squeezing Pakistan and building a land conduit to Central Asia. But the truth is that India doesn't have, this is, this is a dream. This is not a real policy. It doesn't have the money. Nothing is actually occurring in these regards. Japan's aid is nothing like China's economic depth of interest in these uh, kinds of uh, places. I don't see any balancing occur, occurring. 
So you have to take seriously the question that China could win, that China will become uh, the regional uh, hegemon. You have to even ask yourself the question of whether Chinese Han settler colonialism, given these territorial ambitions, will ever reach Central Asia. Um, and uh, people in the, in the countries around China can't help but ask themselves this question. So I don't know how this will work out. The only thing I will offer as a prognosis for the future that I'll bet on is China's going to increase the weight in the world of its minilateral international organizations such as the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and the group known as BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, to include Central Asia and to build on Central Asia. As part of, as Chinese leaders see it, transiting global governance from a European-American-centered world to a China-centered world. And Central Asia and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, I think, are a very important part of this for China. The Shanghai Cooperation Organization has recently expanded to incorporate India and Pakistan, India for Russia, Pakistan for China. Um, Iran and Turkey will be uh, full members. Um, and the BRICS and their new development bank will reach out to Tajikistan, what they already have, Egypt and other countries to create a development bank that will be more important in the world than the World Bank or the Asian Development Bank. Um, and I would further forecast that Russia will not get what it wants from Central Asia. What Russia wants from the Belt and Road Initiative in China is that China build a high-speed rail from northeast China going across Siberia to Moscow and another high-speed rail from Kazakhstan going up to Moscow. And I think it's a high probability The railroad will look like this, if you can see the red line, which goes south of Russia, but does go through mostly uh, Kazakhstan and finds its way to Europe and serves the interest that I said, that Russia is really being marginalized uh, by the Chinese policies in Central Asia, although China works very hard um, to, in some small ways, save the face and not humiliate the Russians, because Russia serves certain very important political interests for China and international bodies. So what I see is a China which is ever wealthier, more powerful, and full of territorial ambitions, a state which is strong, which has political will for restoring how it imagines this ancient glory, and has popular support for its purposes. And it is well aware that there are all these efforts to balance against China, and I think it sees them as pitiful and incapable of seeing, of succeeding. So I would conclude that China will win and it will become the dominant power in the region, except for two things. I don't know the future of the Chinese economy. I don't know that China's debt crisis and other negative factors, such as a trade war with the Trump administration, will not radically slow China's growth. I actually tend to think that China's growth is already slowing in a serious kind of way. I would be more confident in absolutely predicting simply that China is going to win if I knew for sure 
that the hawk chauvinists that I talked about, who are ever weightier in the Chinese communist regime, were not going to respond to some almost inevitable crisis in some more important part of the world by getting China involved in a major military event. I fear that the probability of economic slowdown and military clashes is actually growing ever higher. So, as I said earlier, I don't know the future. I really can, and I hope I describe this, easily imagine China winning. But I also can imagine an economic crash in China in which debt crises over Belt and Road Initiative loans to Central Asia would play a part. And I really can imagine, given China's territorial and hegemonic ambitions um, and the power of interests inside of China who won't back down at some point, of a serious military clash occurring. Still, I really, really do not know the future, and I don't believe anyone does. What I do know is beyond what we've just described, there are what are called wild cards and black swans out there. Wild cards are things which if I told you it was going to happen, it would be incredible. You wouldn't believe me. You would think I'm a nut. Black swans are events that you can't even imagine, but still happen um, ever more frequently as the world changes more quickly. So uh, I think we have a world of radical uncertainty, which prevents me from telling you what the future will be. But I do think it's worth understanding why, as a matter of fact, China is win winning. And why, as a matter of fact, dangers lurk which could prevent China from winning. So I'm full of uncertainties about the future of China's relations with Central Asia. And so the floor is now open to you to tell me what the real truth is about the future of China and Central Asia, and I'll stop there.